1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. From Welcome to Art Slice, a podcastable serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Duenas. I'm Russell Shoemaker. And listeners, we're, so, we're sorry. So sorry. We're, we're extra late. We got lost in the weeds on this one. This was Super like lost. a this was a little art history slash Catholic history time bomb. I don't think we realized. We didn't see that yeah, coming. Yeah, we just picked it up. We're carrying it around. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for all the condolences for our beautiful furry yes. girl, Frankie. We still miss her very much. We are hoping, though, that her little cat spirit is catching sunspots and breaking into pain. Entries on the astral is. plane somewhere, right? <laughs> but anyway, Stephanie, what little time bomb did we pick up that blew up in our faces so we were late for? <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> that makes any sense. listeners, today we will be discussing the unlikely pairing of one Gian Lorenzo Bernini, you've heard of him, yeah, Bernini, Bernini, and St. Teresa of Avila. I know, what, what, keke? We will be discussing them in the monumental marble sculpture slash installation piece that is the Ecstasy of St. Teresa from 1647 to 1652. Located in the Cornaro Chapel <laughs> okay. in the Church of Santa Maria della Vittoria okay. in Rome. Okay, where's Rome? In Italy. Okay, where's Italy? In Europe. Okay, where's, where's Europe? On planet Earth. Okay. I see what Is you're doing. Is it close to a body of water? <laughs> okay. Yes, actually. <laughs> uh, both Bernini and St. Teresa are monumental figures. It's why we're late. It's why, it's why we got caught in the weeds. Yes, St. Teresa of Avila was a huge influence on metaphysics, yeah. mysticism, She's rad. queer authors like... Virginia Woolf. Yeah, it's just yeah. shocking to me as well. And Bernini, apart from just defining Baroque sculpture, no big deal, actually set the stage for more experimental artists that we've covered, like uh, Marcel, Marcel Duchamp. <laughs> Who was another time bomb. Yeah. Uh, and thus, <laughs> we will only be giving you a snippet of both of their lives here. Okay, but don't worry. We will return to at least Bernini at some point in the future. Quick check-in with you, Russell. Uh-oh. This is not your favorite time period at all. So what, what are your thoughts on Bernini to put <laughs> Uh, this might surprise you, Stephanie. Oh? This is one of my favorite artworks ever. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, well, okay, maybe not now. I have a little bit of a different opinion on it now. But this is one of the first artworks that I was really wowed by. And I mean really wowed by. In my community college art history 101 <gasps> class. Aw, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, because everything up to that point in art history was super static. Yeah. Not much going on besides for vague, beefy arm gestures. <laughs> lots of lots, beef. Lots of uh, contrapasto. So what's for dinner? And then Bernini <laughs> hits you with like a 
a fucking lightning bolt. Russell is not a big fan of Western artwork from this time period. No. So this is a big news. A big news, big if true. <laughs> like I said, though, have a little bit more of a complicated opinion of his work now. Yes. Okay. So getting to that, a quick intro on Bernini listeners. He was an incredibly talented individual who happened to have the resources to nurture that talent, which led him to produce some of the best examples or the best, depending <laughs> on who you ask, of Baroque sculpture and architecture. His craft skills were top notch. Top I mean, notch. some of the best. What? I said top notch. Oh, just... some, of the, <laughs> some of the best you will ever see. Like many of the Renaissance masters, he also worked in a variety of ways. So your regular old painting, your old sculpting, your architecturing, but also <laughs> some early comic style illustrations, mm. some interactive theater set designs. Whoa. And he would often meld, such as the Baroque way, his best known way of working, sculpting with that sense of theatricality, with that architecture, with everything else, right? Meaning that he was thinking about the audience's experience within his artwork. Marcel. <laughs> Marcel Duchamp, exactly. They were almost like early installations. Also known as Bel Composto, which is a phrase that Bernini invented because he was such a control freak. Yeah, it's also the name <laughs> of a pizza place. Are you serious? Probably. I know, right? <laughs> I should clarify in America. In America. Yeah, in America. Okay. <laughs> in America. Okay, so bel composto, the art thing, means a <laughs> beautiful unification of all different types of art. But from a lot of his most famous works, because of what he was depicting and how he depicted mm. it, I just get some no bueno vibes. No bueno vibes. From it. Yeah. Okay. New tacos. <laughs> Stand. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, it's harder for me to come back to Bernini's work now. I, mm-hmm. The craft and the intelligence of his work alone is, mm-hmm. is mesmerizing, but it's really hard for me to piece out exactly what holds me back from still being a huge fan of his work. Not even including how or what Bernini sculpts. Unfortunately, I'm very aware of what a piece of shit he is. <laughs> yes, listeners, Bernini was a shitty person and his privilege protected him from facing any real consequences for his actions. He was untouchable. He was a modern day uh, celebrity. He was a monster. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so did you know that he once sent his servant to slash his lover's face after he caught her cheating on him? Servant uh, went to jail. Does not surprise me. Bernini was fine. Yes. I bet. Yeah. I mean, he didn't even get a slap on the wrist. Anyway, Bernini, I'm not saying you have to do this, listeners, but his work rises to a level where it deserves to be compartmentalized. For you me. are describing the Art Slice LLC TSA patent pending guillotine TSA standing for. The uh, tr- to um, see, I'm imagining like a, a Picasso and a Jeff Coons and a Paul Gauguin. They're all kind of like in line at the TSA line, Super you know. And they, they see they see like the Bernini ahead of them getting chopped up because it's a guillotine. They're like, oh god! But then they see another piece only getting like one chop. And like, well, he only got one chop. I think we'll be fine. Do you think we'll be fine? Paco again? Do you think we'll be fine, Picasso? I didn't realize it was a guillotine, but that's fine. Go on. We'll workshop the name and industrial <laughs> function of it, but if you're at home, <laughs> listeners, looking at the Ikea-style manual of how to use this thing, basically there are three chops. Chop, chop, chop. Three segments that we have to split a work of art up into. Number one, the craft of the work. How impressive it is to look at. It doesn't matter if you personally don't care for it, if it's not your tastes. You're just evaluating the craft. And then, okay, on uh, uh, chop number two is the <laughs> is the art piece itself. This is my or yours or Stephanie's personal experience of it, right? What does it say to you? What does it say to me as an artist, as an art admirer? This is like a version of death of the author or separate art from artists. Okay. I'm sure we've all heard that phrase. Yes. And if you asked me like 10, eight years ago, I would have said it's the only way to look at a work of art. Forget the artist. Don't let the artist that's celebrity, Jeff Koons, or the artist <laughs> as asshole, Jeff Koons, soil the work. 
artwork they made, Jeff Koons didn't make it, because you might <laughs> miss out on learning from it. Like we always say, don't read the plaque until you spend some time with the work because it can color your opinion. Exactly. Of it. And then here comes the final chop. Chop. <laughs> Number three, <laughs> chop three, is like after you're done learning from the work, go read the plaque. Go learn the history, assuming that it's a well-written, informative plaque. Because you cannot separate the artist from art entirely. Right. Right. And there are some cases where their life and circumstances ultimately completely informs the work that they made in either small or large ways, right? Mm -hmm. And this part is really tricky because sometimes it makes very little influence on the work whatsoever, but sometimes it is just so embedded in the work that you can see it coming a mile (laughs) away from steps one and two. Right. Like if an artist is racist or abusive or just fucking creepy, (laughs) I have to compartmentalize all kinds of artwork because of this. But taking apart the work and judging it by those three points is really helpful for me. You can like the crafts but think the artist is an asshole, Jeff Koons. You can (laughs) like the idea of an art piece but think the craft sucks. You can also find value in the story of an artist's life but have no interest in the work they made personally. This is also a really great way to have a well-rounded experience with a complicated work of art that may have aspects or history that you don't necessarily agree with. Which so much art (laughs) has, right? So, I think you all know where we're going with this, listeners. Let us give you a little content warning. You may want to earmuff any little (laughs) impressionables around you. There are sexual themes throughout the episode, including a short but visceral description of a vision of bodily harm, and there is also a very brief discussion of a mythological story involving sexual assault. We don't dwell on it, but we will give you a trigger warning so you can skip ahead. So let's get into it, listeners. As always, you can find all of the images we are about to discuss on ArtSlicePod.com and some of the images on our Instagram page at ArtSlicePod. Patrons, we will also be (laughs) uploading a second slice of Bernini, if you will, a breakdown of Bernini's Memorial to Maria Raggi, which which is uh, it is a magical mushroom ride of a work. <laughs> Speaking of rides, we will basically have another episode's worth of bloopers. If that's any indication of what kind of a ride y'all are in for today, <laughs> it'll all be up on our Patreon soon on patreon.com slash artslicepod. So why do we need to know anything about St. Teresa of Avila? Mm. Well, listeners, Russell, (laughs) the first thing you will learn about St. Teresa of Avila is that she was a nun who experienced legendary mystical visions, one in particular involving a cherub and a spear, but more on that later. And that is as much as you would learn from the piece that we are discussing today. In your typical setting. Yes, but there is so much more to Teresa's story. Her influence is global and it's still present even to this day. Her admirers range from Catholics like my grandma to writers, <laughs> philosophers, and even dictators. Yeah, I mean, some may say that Franco had her eye on him. <laughs> Sorry, stupid. I didn't name names, but since you're naming (laughs) names, yes, he had her left eyeball and her right hand. Freakish. Whoa, a hand too? Sorry, hold on. Left eye, left hand. Okay. Listeners, um, we're just cutting to the chase. Okay, she was buried and then literally everyone took a part of her body. Everyone wanted a piece of her. Let's just say that. Everyone wanted a piece of her. Piece of that saint. Couldn't couldn't rest in peace. The hot to trot saint. She's resting in pieces. What? You see what I did there? That was a good joke. That was pretty good. (laughs) Let's get into it though. Can we keep all of that, please? 
Teresa Sanchez de Cepeda y Almada was born in 1515 in Avila, Spain. Avila is a city in the barren, dry Spanish landscape, and it's about 70 miles northwest of Madrid. It's called the City of Saints and Stones, mm. and it's known for its saints and stones. That's nice. That's good. <laughs> yeah, it you, has... You get what you come for. It has perfectly intact medieval fortification walls that look like they're straight out of a fairy tale mm. or a Disney movie, whatever. Uh, it's magical, okay? So it was and is a very religious city, okay? There's several churches, monasteries, and convents. Okay. So, unsurprisingly, Teresa's parents were very religious, but they were also very wealthy. They were from noble blood. And thus, her parents wanted to raise a family of pious, well-behaved children. Okay. It seemed that they were successful and that the religious part stuck maybe a little too well. Okay. And then combined with Teresa's wild imagination, it caused her to get swept away in her devotion to God. That's just good parenting. That's d- depends who you ask. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what they wanted. Yeah. Okay. I guess so. That being said, though, it actually kind of kind of made her a little naughty. Little Teresa and her brother got so hyped on all of the stories of the saints that their devout Catholic mother would tell them. They're kind of like superheroes back then, right? They got like little trading cards. <laughs> you know, this one died uh, <laughs> crucified upside down over a hungry pit of lions. These saints die horribly, right? Yeah. So you would not think that the kids would be learning this, but they were. So Teresa convinced her brother Rodrigo to come with. And together, they attempted to run away from home to fight against the Moors so the that moves, they yeah. could... <laughs> So they could die tragically and become martyrs. Okay. Teresa, she she really wanted the Littlest Saint Award, like, so badly. <laughs> Anything for that award. <laughs> it's like Rugrat style. They're riding their little tricycles to go get martyred. <laughs> I mean... Ba, 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 ba. Sorry, go on. They only got as far as the city gates because their T.O. caught them and brought their asses home. Those little plastic kid ladders don't reach very far. <laughs> the Fisher-Price yeah. ones. Yeah. Didn't work out too well. Yeah. So this was just the beginning. They're, they're, like, practicing at home with their little, like, plastic cast. Like, it's easy. I'll just stand on your back and hop on over. We'll go fight the moops. Is that because they live so far away from the walls that it looked as big as their plate yeah, place? Yeah, like, the look at it. It's tiny. It's even smaller they than this it, one. Totally. Yeah, they're doing, like, sight line checks. Kid logic. Oh, yeah. man, salad days. Okay. <laughs> this was just the beginning of Teresa's passion for God influencing her while her rebellious side is starting to show. So Teresa's family was wealthy, right? So they were all of these expectations on Teresa to yep. behave, to be a proper young blue blood lady. Sounds like she didn't care for any of that. She was curious, <laughs> as we know by now. Yeah, she loved to socialize. She loved reading rebellious pop fiction, okay. which was mostly medieval tales of, of knights, probably okay. fighting moors. <laughs> okay, moops, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, so knowing Teresa's rebellious behavior, her parents kept a pretty close eye on her. Unexpectedly, Teresa's mother died, and this would really be the first of many difficult obstacles that she would experience. Mm-hmm. Her father, who all of a sudden was a, a single dad, watch out, uh, <laughs> he just doubled down. He did not want any trouble from Teresa. And then Teresa became really close, really close to an older cousin, an older female cousin. Oh, oh, oh. She later described this time in her life as being, quote, blinded by passion, end quote. That's all she would say about it. <laughs> it's very much believed that she was referring to an intimate encounter with said older female cousin. Well, it very much sounds like one. Yeah, she wasn't vague enough. Yeah. <laughs> And okay, when her papa found out about it, he was like, nope, nope, nope. He sent her ass off to the local nun school. Yeah, to to surround her with strict, older, 
<laughs> nuns and rebellious young ladies. Okay. Yeah, in skirts. He was hoping that yeah. the nuns would pray the gay away, or cousin, I guess. I don't know. His intention wasn't for her to stay there forever, but he fucked up because she wasn't going to grow out of her queerness ever. And she decided to stay and make her life in the convent. Okay, <laughs> Papa was pissed. Okay. Very pissed. Yeah. At himself, probably, and also at Teresa. <laughs> He just wanted... It's like, in hindsight, maybe that was the best decision. <laughs> Oops. He just wanted his daughter to grow up to be a proper, eligible bachelorette who could marry into another wealthy family. Is that is that so much to ask, sure. Russell? Uh, no, I guess. It's not. Okay. He's not getting any heirs, et cetera, et cetera. So Teresa's just giving it all the fingers. She's like, no husband, no kids, no thanks. She wanted none of it. But she... She still wasn't 100% ready to give everything up to walk with the Lord. In order to keep these creature comforts and some of her social life, she ended up choosing a very lax and local convent. Okay, the Order of the Carmelites. Okay, where the nun fits are, uh, you know, a little bit of ankle shown, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, though, this yeah. convent does seem like it was a lady love oasis. <laughs> Getting into that moment, okay? okay? okay. All right. Don't get too comfortable, though, right. okay? Tragedy struck once again. Teresa, now Sister T, Sister Teresa, whatever, whatever you want, she began suffering from extreme ailments, okay. ailments that would continue for the rest of her life. And extreme really isn't even the right word. At one point, her legs were partially paralyzed for three years. Oh, my God. After she was in a coma. Wow. So we're going to call these episodes, okay? These okay. episodes shook her, okay? It was time for her to get serious about her walk with the Lord, so Teresa decided that the lax convent of the Carmelites needed some serious reforming. She's like, enough is enough. We need some discipline around here, ladies. This loosey-goosiness is why it took me so long to find okay. my stride with the Lord. Okay, I'm sorry, other sisters. Do any of you remember admitting a narc into this very <laughs> lax convent? Okay, I thought we were all cool here. <laughs> Psych. <laughs> she did a total like 180, okay? Yeah. Total rehaul. Many of the OG nuns were not having it. They yeah. were not. This is like, this is not cool, yeah. Teresa. Get the knock out. So the Carmelites, under Teresa's reforming, their new mission would focus on prayer and contemplation, which was Teresa's thing. She also put a little racing stripe down the down the back of the, the nun outfit to make it look cool, Ooh, updated. I was about you know? to laugh, but actually, that sounds kind of cool. nice, right? Yeah. I like All that. Right. Yeah. yeah, very luxury designer. Oh, yeah. she was bougie. That's yeah. true. She had that sensibility. Yeah. Good call. All right. So aside from the stripe, they also were going to live by stricter rules, mm. like Str your <laughs> your uh, weekly self-flagellation. Oh, perhaps. okay. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Um, you're ditching your shoes for sandals. Socks are optional. Okay. Or you're just going to go barefoot altogether, hence the discalced. Did you know what that meant? No. Have you ever heard that word in your life? I knew immediately because growing up, I would always, 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 sorry. Can you tell I still have like feelings about this? Yeah. Always get scolded for walking around the house descalzo oh, or God. barefoot. This is, okay, this Lest is I catch you, a cold. Yeah, you yell at me for this now. God, okay. these old Mexican superstitions, man, they just stay with you. Eventually, some of the other sisters actually narked Teresa out, okay? <laughs> and I cannot say that I blame them. It sounds like they had a pretty good thing going on there. They narked her <laughs> out to the RC Squared's Human Resource Department, a.k.a. Stephanie, the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, okay. okay. And HR put Teresa on a conflict mediation plan <laughs> oh, no. where they made her write everything down, oh, which God. is actually why we have so much information about Teresa's life and beliefs 
Today, she's known as a prolific writer, but not much of that was by choice. And it's in these writings that we get a little peek, a little little peek behind the habit, so to speak. (laughs) First of all, that lesbianism was common among nuns, but she urged for it to be kept on the down low to protect (laughs) herself, probably, and the other nuns. Um, Because remember, they were still women in a male-dominated patriarchal religion slash society. See something, say nothing. (laughs) I love it. Okay, yes, sisters before misters. It's highly likely that she had relationships with other nuns, not just sisterly, but romantically. Someone with whom she was very close to, and who was actually by Teresa's side when she passed away decades later, was Ana de San Bartolomé. Ana herself wrote, quote, Since I took the habit, she took me to her cell, and for the rest of her life, I was with her, end quote. I mean, HR wasn't just prying about the uh, the lady love, I think you called it. (laughs) Uh, They were actually willing to overlook that, you know, keep that on the DL. What they were mostly concerned about was Teresa's reforming and teachings, okay? Why? Why do you have that look on your face? Well, I'm getting to it. Why do you have that look on your face? I'm getting to it. Teresa, while regulating her ankle eye consumption, you know, (laughs) self-flagellating, walking around barefoot, uh, came up with a new way of praying, which is called mental prayer. Mm. And mental prayer was more than just repeating prayers with God in your head. It was a more purposeful, inward, conscious time spent with the divine. Okay. Oh, no. A little bit more like meditation. Teresa discovered when you strip past the physical to the soul, you find true self-knowledge and that true self-knowledge is God, Stephanie. Oh. And thus God is a part of you, a part of your soul. A part of your cells. Mm-mm. A part of your bod, one might say. No, 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 <laughs> no. No, not really. Not, not really. Not really. Not, only slightly. St. Teresa's <laughs> beliefs no! are considered Christian mysticism, so borderline occultism. And she was, of course, a huge influence on a lot of theosophist <laughs> of writers. Of course. Okay? Of course. By way of Rosicrucianism, by way of Christian mysticism. It's it's a long winding path. She wasn't like a central figure We've to that. We've been the, on that path. Yeah. I, it, I know it. <laughs> I just wanted to scare you. Rene Descartes, <laughs> however, he lifted a lot of her ideas after reading her work in Jesuit school. Muy interesante. Exactly. All right. Well, Teresa. Teresa was a force to be reckoned with. Despite her constant illness, despite her own sisters turning her into the Spanish Inquisition mm. or HR, she pressed on. She continued to open new decals Carmelite convents in Spain. She continued to face opposition, but she still gained new followers wherever she went. This is to say, listeners, that Teresa's courage, faith, Her reforming, writing, and her queer bravery are all why she is a huge figure in the church and beyond today. But there was also the fact that she frequently experienced visceral, otherworldly, mystical visions. Gian Lorenzo Bernini was born in 1598 in Naples, Italy, to a big family of 13, not including my mom and papa. That's five more than Giotto, for those of you counting at home. That's so many fucking children. A lot. Well, his papa, Pietro Bernini, was actually a manor sculptor. Mm. His most famous work was Fontana della Barcaccia. Fountain of uh, of old weird-ass boats. Yes. 
Yes. And that work is no exception. <laughs> it is exactly a weird ass boat fountain. So listeners, mannerism, if you recall from our The El Greco episode, is kind of a catch all for artists who were making weirder, more highly stylized art before mannerism was, of course, the Renaissance. So artists categorized as mannerists were moving on from the hyper realistic perfection of the Renaissance into their own individual styles, so to speak. Pietro utilized those 13 kids, all right? He probably had them working for him in his sculpture studio mm. on those weird-ass sculptures. Yeah, little baby hands moving those raw hunks of marble. <laughs> no, not right now. No. Uh, they're moving those raw hunks of marble around. So it was the middleest child, though. That's some cat, John dude. Lorenzo. <laughs> John Lorenzo was moving around so much marble that he began to be recognized as a prodigy. Mm. You know, because he's only eight years old. I, he's eight? Yeah. What is it? What? Okay, what is an eight-year-old? What I don't is know. It, what even eight-year-olds like? I don't like, know. No idea. All right. Uh, so that same year, Papa Bernini received a commission from the Pope. The board of directors and CEO of the RC Square. Yeah, RC Square. Papa Bernini texts the Pope right back. Yeah, he doesn't wait the uh, 15 minutes to make sure he doesn't look too desperate. No. She's going right back into it, huh? Hell yeah. Gianmarco, Gian Lorenzo, Francesca, Luigi, yeah. yes, Patrizia, okay. Giuseppe, Carmelo, Teodora, right. Giovanna, Pietrice, Michele, Flavia, Lorenzo, pack your bags. Yeah, I didn't catch all those. Are those, hey, are those the real names? Are you just making those up? I made them up. Everybody, get your bags. Let's yeah. go. Let's go. We're going to He would know their names. They're his children. You should know. Yeah. Honestly, though, I think parents forget names. I know you're only a child, but I got called my sister's name multiple times. Yes. So honestly, probably didn't know their names. Gotcha. You there with the freckles. Well, there's just so many. Like his brain <laughs> is so full with children's names. So they moved on up from the little time to the big time. Okay, this was the place to be if you were an artist. This was the mothership. Big church industry, mm-hmm. big church energy, mm-hmm. towering <laughs> basilicas, chapels, yeah. obelisks. I don't know how to say that. The RC Square had like <laughs> fat pockets with profits from uh, energizing <laughs> uh, resources from other countries slash assets. Right. Listeners, if you recall from episode 16, this was all built after the highly influential and powerful Roman Catholic Church, a.k.a. RC yeah. Squared, was under fire from the rising of the Protestants and the pagans. <laughs> the woke mob. Basically, yeah. this had everyone in Europe questioning their Christian beliefs and it had the Catholic clergy shaking in their carmine, red-dyed royal robes. Thus, the big rebrand. Remind those common folks who to worship, build buildings, sculpt sculptures, paint paintings, decorate the cardinal's bathrooms in, in explicit Greek porn. You gotta keep them happy. Yeah. You know? Keeping just, everybody happy. Yeah. I mean, so what, <laughs> like, what commoner wouldn't want to be a part of this, Stephanie? Right. Uh, and I'm gesturing towards all the new shit being built in Rome. Right. Yeah. Get on board. The brand. You're part of it. Yeah. You want to see yourself. Take a selfie in there. And You know? Yeah. Hashtag, ha- hashtag RC squared. It is super selfie worthy, yeah. actually. Super self worthy RC squared. Hashtag. <laughs> but when it came to art and architecture, Jesus was still ostensibly the star of the show. Yeah. The Virgin Mary, a close second, mm-hmm. you know, sidekick. But they also got together to kind of create an extended RC squared universe with new saints, mm. a new reboot, and a new rebrand. Yeah. Okay. And they needed, Stephanie, uh-huh. a director at the helm of their big ass budget for all this. <laughs> big ass budget. Yeah. Listeners, I'm sure you know where we're going with this. Five years after their move to Rome, a teenage John Lorenzo skills really started to shine. And I mean, really began to shine. Mm. His papa, Pietro Sculptures, began to be more of a collaboration between the two, father-son. Yeah, yeah. collaboration meaning uh, teenage Bernini's doing the work while Papa B is nursing his sciatica and <laughs> offering instructions between sips of his pierogi, right? <laughs> 
Eventually, word got around about the great talent of the young Gian Lorenzo, a.k.a. Bernini, and through various commissions for different cardinals, he eventually was recommended to the Pope at the time. Mm. Got the ultimate introduction. Got the mm. ultimate network yeah. going on here. Okay. LinkedIn, checking in. He's got the right connections. Yep, exactly. What's so, this? Who's checking out my profile? It's the Pope. So the Pope summoned Bernini to appear before him to prove his talent. Since he can't, you know, just SpongeBob style, whip up a Marvel masterpiece <laughs> in a moment's notice, Bernini opted to quickly whip up a sketch of St. Paul, which was the Pope's namesake. Yeah. He was just wowed. Oh my God. Little he was like, agape. oh my God. And Pope mouth agape. Yeah, his little mouth was agape. Yeah. So he was like, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so instantly the Pope was like, you Bernini, you are the chosen artist. Bernini's career was off to a good start. He has the very powerful, very wealthy RC Square at his disposal and he literally begins to change the face of Rome, which was already filled with incredible art and architecture. Okay, look no further than Michelangelo's Naked Davide. <laughs> but there was just something about a Bernini sculpture that would leave you in awe. He brought a new theatricality to those same old biblical and mythological stories, creating something completely new and competing with Michelangelo's stamp on Rome. David da- Davide is a good example Example, right? Michelangelo's work was masterfully done, mm-hmm. buttery, hyper-realistic, beefy, beefy boys. They were stoic. They were moving slowly, flexing every single muscle in their bodies yeah. all at once. Mm-hmm. Cue the Dragon Ball Z noises. <laughs> okay, I don't want to get blue here, but, you know, okay. they were probably clenching their buttholes, too. Okay. <laughs> Bernini's figures, they weren't stiff beefcakes. They were dynamic, Mm -hmm. sculpted right in the middle of action, defying the physics, defying the gravity, and just stylistically over the top. The figures were more realistic than Michelangelo's, and they were often caught in fantastical cinematic moments. Bernini was just super extra, frosting (laughs) on top of frosting. On top of ruffles, on top of gilded decahedrons, okay? (laughs) We are a long way from the Microsoft finger of God <laughs> in the cartoony realism of Giotto. Bernini was on the precipice of a new style of art, one that was all grandeur and all awe, the Baroque. Okay, so let's talk about an example of all of the qualities that make Bernini Bernini, but also encompasses Baroque sculpture. Russell, why don't you explain to the listeners what Baroque is? (laughs) Uh, I'll do my best here. Uh, Baroque mediums vary from sculpture to painting to architecture, decorative objects, lots of decorative objects in literature and music. A little Johann Bach, perhaps, a little, (laughs) little fugue. Baroque actually comes from the Portuguese word meaning irregularly shaped pearl, which can apply to its color, its texture, its shape. I mean, these are wild looking pearls. They are out of this world. They have the qualities of a classic pearl, but it's remixed. So, okay, imagine listeners, you're, di- you're diving for pearls, okay? You're doing, a, <laughs> you're doing a big dive for pearls and you find a regular old pearl. That would be like the Renaissance. So Renaissance aspects like naturalism and classicism, uh, those hung on in the irregular shaped pearls or the Baroque. So things are still realistic in Baroque with the Greco-Roman influences, but now the remix, the sort 
sort of weirdness comes in the form of drama in cinematic compositions, dynamic angles, Mm -hmm. swirling details, or the lifelike emotional expressions of the figures and their poses within the work. It's like you're watching an intense telenovela scene, (laughs) but with moody lighting because it's meant to evoke some kind of emotion in you. So the work we are about to get into was a commission from Cardinal Scipione Borghese for his BFF's personal villa. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's not <laughs> of a Catholic story. It's from Greek yeah. mythology. Which seems weird because 300 years earlier, like in the medieval times or whatever, they would not have even let that shit fly right. one bit, right? But this was kind of a flex on the part of the cardinals showing off that they were like well-read, mm-hmm. that they read the mythologies from centuries earlier, right? But also I think the, the cardinals were kind of dirty birds. Definitely. We're getting into this. This is a kind of a dirty bird piece. Definitely. Yes. Listeners, just a quick trigger warning. Brief discussion about sexual assault coming up. If you'd like to skip it, fast forward about four minutes. This is an early work of Bernini's from 1621, from when he was only 23, by the name of The Rape of Proserpina. Technically, the title is a translation from the Latin word raptus, meaning seized or carried off. So it doesn't necessarily imply sexual violence outright, but it certainly implies physical assault at minimum. So that aside, we're looking at a huge marble sculpture of two figures, a man slash god, Pluto or Hades, depending on which version of the myth you're referring to, trying to grab a hold of the female figure, Proserpina. Yeah, she, the, she was the goddess of uh, vegetables, essentially. <laughs> goddess of vegetation. Yeah, same, same. Yes, okay. So he was going to take her down to the underworld, The right? winter, yeah. Right. Take and her down to like, the winter where, where her crops don't grow. <laughs> right, okay. She's like, no, fuck that. Fuck that so hard. So pervy Pluto is not taking no for an answer. He grabs her waist and thigh. Yeah, he... He's hoisting her nude body up against her will mm-hmm. next to his mostly nude body. Like, she's fighting him. She's trying to, her best to push him away. And they're both basically nude because it's Greek mythology. Yeah, everyone's naked be, back then. Right, and they're yeah. just showing off their perfect bods, but it doesn't really help the <laughs> sitch in this case. Now, listeners, Proserpina's experience here is all too common, and not just in mythology, but in real life, too. Not saying anyone has to do this for any reason, but for me, as someone who has experienced situations similar to this... I have to ask myself, why should we care about this piece? And well, it all starts with number one, craft. Bernini is committed to the details that make you believe even for a second that this is happening, good or bad. He's made it look like Pluto's fingers are sinking into Proserpina's skin as they would be in real life since she's, you know, trying to get away from her abductor. And he's taken the time to actually even sculpt some streaming tears down her face. And the way he depicts movement, Proserpina's hair is twirling in the wind in a different direction, right? Pluto's curly beard is flying backwards in another direction. And these moments reveal themselves as you walk around the sculpture. Bernini has specifically sculpted it in a way that tells a story, kind of like a comic book that tells a story through panels, but instead you're walking around the sculpture. There is so much other action happening with the figures, not to mention just the impressive way he has accounted for balance, Mm. right? The weight of the stone could easily collapse near Pluto's legs if he hadn't been so careful with how he's carved it. If you're looking at this, listeners, like he's hoisting something up. Just mm-hmm. think about this structurally, mm-hmm. how easy it would be for this to tip over otherwise. Yeah, right. And you mentioned the most famous detail where Pluto's fingers are buried in Proserpina's thighs. Bernini has made the marble look like a supple flesh. 
almost. He definitely leaves out the cellulite. Of course yeah. he does. I guess that's not very godly. No, no. Um, no. But you know what? I want to see a Marvel sculpture with cellulite. Listeners, <laughs> if you know of a sculptor that has done this, please let us know. If you are a Marvel sculptor, just sculpt some cellulite. Yeah. I'm not gonna, I mean, I'm not asking for yeah. commission or anything. Yeah. Challenge yourself. A little yeah. challenge for you. Stephanie will pay for it. Don't worry. Uh, the image, no, she won't. <laughs> the image of just this specific moment has been cropped and used over and over like a sexy art thing. Like I remember back in the day on Tumblr, it was all over mm, the place, yes. right? But when you pan out, it's a traumatizing moment. It shows you how images can easily be recontextualized, which is what I think is so interesting about Bernini's sculpture here, because he is telling a story in a way that might cause a lot of tension. You might think for a minute, like, oh, this is a, a sexy, sexy scene. And then as you walk around it, you're like, oh, no, no, it's not. Yes, exactly. And then to amp up the tension here, there is a three-headed dog yeah. below, okay? Yeah. It's often omitted in detail shots for a couple reasons. it's not sexy. It's not sexy, yeah. but also it's at certain angles, you just can't see it, okay? So <laughs> this mini Cerberus, like, tip this work over the edge for me from going just uncomfortable to anxiety-inducing, mm. which, Russell, honestly, it makes me feel like I might just lose my marbles. Oh, my God. You know what I'm saying? I think I'm, I'm going to need a drink for my big marble mug. You know we don't have a marble mug. So I can sip it and actually look out the window and see the children playing with their marbles. Sometimes, children don't play with marbles anymore, Stephanie. All right, let's go to the Arts Place Pantry. Marvelous. Vamonos. At first, you might think carving up a chunk of marble is incredibly complex and super scary. And you're probably right. Neither Stephanie nor I have ever carved in marble. But based on the materials we have carved, we both agree if we were handed a slab of beautiful, opulent marble to just kind of lay into, we wouldn't be able to shake that feeling of, what if I fuck this whole thing up? Marble is a delicate stone. You need a muscle memory that comes with years of experience to handle it. You have to consider weight distribution, the pressure of how and which angle you carve, and how and when to deliver that mallet to chisel to stone. Still, artists have been carving marble up for a millennia, so don't let that fear scare you off. Some of the earliest marble sculptures surfaced in Mesopotamia, crude and cute sculptures typically of animals, but as artists passed on tips and tricks of refinement, the craft slowly refined into the stunning sculptures of the Renaissance. Think of Michelangelo's snack of a nude shepherd boy. I, well, that's weird. Nude shepherd man. D the nude the nude man. Stan Dave, Dave, think of David. Think of David. Typically, an artist will hack or pitch away at a raw stone, letting large chunks of that stone slide right off as they sketch a very crude shape of what they intend to depict. This can end up looking like any old stone you might find out on a hike, or it can look like Homer Simpson's mashed potato circus tent. After that, you switch to a more specific chisel tool and continue to refine your sculpture all the way down till it's beautiful. And then, in order to get that smooth surface, to get that skin smooth surface, you'll then use a metal tool that kind of resembles a cheese grater until you are finally just using sandpaper and polishing that finished product. What people find so beautiful about marble, and one of the reasons it's been used for so long to depict specifically humans, is that marble has a natural, unique property of translucency and opacity called subsurface scattering, meaning that when light hits the surface of the marble, it passes through the translucency, but then is immediately met with this grain, if you will, of that opacity. And the light is then scattered in that grain as it reflects back to your eyeballs, creating a one-of-a-kind skin-like surface. Stephanie, our little Pontremont babies have been satiated once again. Marvelous. Uh, okay, let's go to the break. Let's go to a break. Let's take a break before uh, Stephanie makes any more marble puns. What? I marbly ever do. Okay.
listeners, let's check in with Bernini and see how his career as the chosen one is going. Bernini is a big deal now, okay? He was the artist of Rome, okay? He was designing architecture, sculpture, he was painting, and he begins to be hailed as the Michelangelo of his century, to which he probably honestly scoffed at, like, <laughs> the Whoa. Mikey and Ben Barocchi? Is that, is that what I he sounds like? So. No. <laughs> okay. I think he sounds more like, huh, the Mikey. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, I wow, know. okay. I, I think he gets a vanity license plate. Okay. All right, it says broke bro, like B-R-Q-B-R-O to go along with his very embellished car. <laughs> so he's got the gilded truck. Um, he's got the gilded carriage nuts. Wait, what? Not, not truck nuts, carriage nuts. Oh my God. <laughs> A very ornate floral spoiler, okay? <laughs> a billowing porcelain steering wheel. I actually want to drive this, okay? And he's he's uh, he's hired a timpanist. A timpanist? You know, a boom, boom, boom. I boom, know what boom. that is. I'm surprised <laughs> you know what it is. <laughs> to sit in the back and bang just like really loud to rattle all the neighbor's windows as he drives by, okay? Right? Yes, and they're wearing Versace sunglasses, right? Exactly, I'm just seeing exactly. like all, all Versace right now. <laughs> yes. Sweet. Bro, bro. Like Michelangelo's rivalry with Raphael and da Vinci, Bernini had attracted a rival or two. Yeah. Most notably, Francesco Borromini. More money, more problems, right? Basically. You know? yeah, 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 basically. So listeners, when you think of Rome, just off the top of your head, you might think of the ancient Roman ruins like the Colosseum or the Forum. But I'm willing to bet that you also think of marvelous fountains, grand sculptures and opulent churches, mm. all with a certain flair. OK, many of those are by Bernini and his arch nemesis. Mrs. Borromini. So mm -hmm. in trying to outdo one another, their rivalry literally reshaped the face of what Rome looked like at the time. And let me just say, this story involves three architects, two different churches, with two different sets of bell towers. All right, according to lore, Borromini was working on a building across the street from Bernini's house. And late one evening, under the cover of night, Borromini sculpted a pair of donkey ears on the building that he was working on. Uh, okay. Because it was facing Bernini's house. Okay. So every time Bernini went outside or even looked out his window, he would see those donkey ears, right? Because, okay, because he was, in, he was calling him an ass? <laughs> Is that it? Yeah, yeah, right? Because that's kind of specific. Okay. There's more to it. So. So apparently, for some reason, people thought that Bernini was the architect for these two towers that were added to the Pantheon, which mm. is one of the best preserved ancient Roman buildings ever. It's actually a miracle that it's still around. Okay. These ugly ass bell towers were basically copied and pasted onto it. Okay. They didn't match the architecture yeah, they at all. Look good. They, we're looking at it. Does not look good. It's not cute. We're not the only ones that thought this, apparently. Yeah. So they were nicknamed the ass's ears. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So he was saying that Bernini did the ass's ears. He's calling them the ass. I still keep going. I, I'm confused. Yeah, no, okay. okay, so the actual architects were Carlo Moderno, somebody else we've never mentioned before this okay. moment, and Borromini. Borromini was part yeah, of this. not Bernini. Okay. Okay, but somehow it was misattributed to Bernini. Well, Borromini's out there like, am <laughs> I the one to blame, you mob crowd that's surrounding these ugly towers? No, common confusion. My name is Borromini. <laughs> you are thinking of Bernini. That's how he got out of it. You're welcome. Yeah. I'm, I'm clearing this so up So he doubles down. He puts the asses ears on, on his building, I yeah. suppose. Yes. Okay. All right. And it makes more sense now. It makes yes. more sense. All right. Yes. Of course, this got Bernini like super fucking fired up. He didn't it's care angry. for that. He was like, fuck this shit. Don't care who sees. Don't care who knows. Yeah. He sculpted a penis and testicles on the facade of his house. His house? House of Bernini. Why his house? Because they faced Borromini's construction site. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. To protest the donkey ears? 
Uh, yeah. Okay. Like, I don't, what, maybe I don't get 16th century, like, well, okay. trolling. I, so I, whenever, hear me out, whenever Borromini would look up from his work, right, his construction work, he's all sweaty, he's hungry, he's ready for beer, he looks over and he sees Bernini's balls. Okay, and dick. Needless to say, these adornments were promptly removed as they were obviously okay. obscene. And then Borromini, his next thing. Okay. Oh, God, okay. Yeah. He's topping he it. He starts sculpting hundreds of donkey masks, okay, or ears or whatever. Okay. And he hires folks to prance around Quietly and make noises when they see <laughs> Bernini. Like when Bernini's yeah. back's turned to them. Like he's working on a sculpture, he's up on the rafters, like he's hacking away. Okay. Right? And then it just like in the day, he's like, and then he just sees like someone prance off. With the bunny ears? Yeah, no, with the donkey ears. Oh, wait, they're not the, yeah. donkey ears. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. That's what he does. That's trolling the most him. Trolling. Oh my God. Borromini was committed, all right, because decades later, a new pope was elected into yeah. office. And this new pope didn't care for Bernini at all. Okay. Bernini. Okay, he didn't care for his charm, his mustache. How, how jumpy he was around donkeys. <laughs> Every conversation he had. Yes. <laughs> and the pope wouldn't hear it because yeah. he's old, probably. Yeah. He didn't care for any of that. He didn't care for his jumpiness. He didn't care about his attitude. So he began hiring other architects like, oh, who's there? Yeah. Borromini. Oh, uh, how convenient. Not afraid of donkey yeah. ears. Ready to go. Yeah, he's didn't have a mustache, just kidding. Uh, Anyway, fast forward from the donkey ear bell towers, Bernini was now assigned to finish building someone else's bell towers, okay? This time on St. Peter's Basilica. The uh, RC squared aplex. Yes, exactly, yes. All right. Um, However, these bell towers had been so poorly constructed that cracks began to surface on the bell towers while Bernini was working on But this wasn't his fault. This was the previous Yes, the previous architect. Okay, okay, okay. Done fucked up. All right, so guess who happens to be in the neighborhood ready with some yes exactly it's Borromini he is watching Bernini from an adjacent rooftop typical typical creep right at the moment that Bernini has just discovered all the bell tower foundation cracks okay that all the previous architects had just covered up with cheap paint and like wheeled out some old renaissance sculptures in front of right should I hate that trick And Bernini, just seeing this for the first time, he's doing he's doing like the frustrated Sims dance. You know, he's panicking. Hands to the head, <laughs> yeah. hands in the air. And he, he, he's spackling the cracks as quickly as he can. Keeps looking over his shoulder, like making sure no one's looking. And then Borromini, who sees this from his little uh, donkey binoculars, pulls out a donkey ear walkie-talkie. It's just one donkey ear, if you're wondering, okay? And and, and quietly to a, an opposing donkey ear walkie-talkie, you mm-hmm. know, it's a set of two. Okay, uh, just quietly says. Yo, Bernini just like looks over his shoulder. He's like quickly like covers everything up with like a tarp. I love it. And then you cut to all these doors with tiny donkey ears opening, and Borromini's hench donkeys <laughs> are prancing out, pointing at Bernini. Eo, look, <gasps> Baltar is cracking. Yeah, Yaw, everyone run. Yeah, or the, <laughs> or the holy basilica of Saint yeah, Peter by yeah. collapse. Run. <laughs> hey, you sure you want to stand over there? I wouldn't, Eo. <laughs> He just works it into his, like, everyday language. (laughs) Did you say eel? (laughs) This prompted the Pope to order a complete demolition of the bell towers in 1646, damaging Bernini's reputation overall, but specifically as an architect. Yaw, indeed. (laughs) Instead of wah, 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 it's (laughs) yaw. 
All right. So not just that, though. Bernini was also fined for the failed oh, wow. project. Got a hoit. All of this delighted Borromini. Yeah, okay? I can imagine. Totally humiliated. Bernini shut himself off from the world, hoping one day that the truth would be known that the tower was not his fault and his legacy would be cleared. And he made a really emotional sculpture called The Truth Unveiled by Time. Yeah, it's pretty emo. It's also the name of his uh, emo band side project. Oh. Fun fact. <laughs> okay. Let's head back to Spain and check in with the discalced Carmelites. Teresa was in her 40s when she really began to have those mystical visions. And this wasn't like me having visions of us being somewhere on a beach with a nice cold drink. No. Can we just pause there, though, and have have that mystical vision for a second? Let's do that. Yeah, it's nice. It is very nice. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's It's important to get away. (laughs) Yes, even for a little bit. All right. Teresa's visions, though, those were intense. Okay, <laughs> was she like astral traveling stuff? Oh my god, no! I'm not. Right, I'm ignoring right. all of these theosophy. I just wanted. I wanted so bad to connect it's cleanly. A, okay. Anyway, all right. One example is when there was a vision in which Teresa's soul was a brightly polished mirror. Okay, and what do you know? Who do you think she sees in the mirror? I think she's uh she's tilting it downwards to scope out uh some of those uh, hot nun ankles and those Birkenstocks <laughs> on the DL. No. Well, maybe she did do that. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> it was not nun ankles, and it was not her reflection. Even though it's her soul, she sees Jesus. His reflection filled the mirror because it was, quote, completely engraved upon the Lord himself by means of a very loving communication, end quote. And that was just the tip of the iceberg, okay? She is seeing all kinds of stuff. Okay. And she shared these visions with her fellow sisters because sisters before misters, right? They would understand. They had an understanding. You just said, what? You just off the top of your head? Well, they, they didn't. I mean, maybe some of them did, but most of them were terrified and they asked her to never speak of them again, okay? Some even thought that she was possessed. And you bet your ass she was writing all of this down for the Spanish Inquisition, prompting them to add yet another line to her profile in their records. (laughs) One vision in particular, she was visited by a cherub. Mm. And I don't think she meant a chubby naked baby angel. No, no, no. Quote, I saw in his hand a long spear of gold and at the iron's point there seemed to be a little fire. He appeared to me to be thrusting it at times into my heart and to pierce my very entrails. When he drew it out, he seemed to draw them out also and to leave me all on fire with a great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan. And yet, so surpassing was the sweetness of this excessive pain that that I I could could not not wish to be rid of it, end quote. Definitely not something you would normally associate with Christianity. Definitely something you would associate with a subreddit, but please do not send us that subreddit. This, This is in line with Teresa's preference of worship. There is a word for this, Mm -hmm. okay? St. Teresa actually mentions it in her autobiography, transverberation. Okay. Okay, It's Latin. something to do with verbs, you know? Yeah. Yeah, action, yeah. You want to hear what kind of action? This is Latin for (laughs) to strike through or pierce or penetrate, I guess. Um, I mean- Once again, don't send us the subreddit, You can't ignore the sexual overtones, okay? Whether it was intentional for Teresa or not. And you can imagine that these mystical visions made for a super compelling, Autobiography. Se- se- weir- weirdly sexy. Se- sex, sexy? Question mark? Sexy? <laughs> Depends who you ask. 
A lot of this is depends who you ask, right? The Spanish Inquisition actually published all the stuff they made her write in 1565 when she was only 50. Mm. (laughs) Once her book was released, her journey fascinated and resonated with its Catholic readership. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't even really know they had books that were being distributed back then. But the printing press was around. Yeah, it was newer. Okay, okay. Yeah. So this book quickly made its way to the top of Rome's bestseller list Mm. once it was translated to Italian, of course whenever that was. For the next decade, her written words circulated, including her visceral visions that probably had something to do with the book's success. Yeah, I would think so. At least I think it caught people's attention and then hopefully they were then moved by her as a person, <laughs> you know, all the work she did. And the RC Squared being in the middle of the Counter-Reformation reboot rebrand was like, <laughs> move over, Mary. We got an extended universe on our hands here. Some 17th century saint material. Usually, canonizing a saint can take hundreds or in some cases even thousands of years but they were like fuck it we need it we need the press okay so they fast-tracked her canonization and in 1622 just 40 years after her death Teresa um, excuse me now San Teresa Saint Teresa (laughs) would become the saint she had wanted since she was a child no decapitation by the the Moors necessary (laughs) yes anyway her legacy has only grown since then in many ways that she probably didn't expect Saint Teresa Teresa, albeit unwittingly, would provide the extraordinary mystical visions that only Bernini can mm. capture into reality. Listeners, we are back in Rome. Enter one Cardinal Cornaro. Okay, so very well off, as you can see here from this portrait of him by Bernardo Strozzi. He is decked out in cochineal red robes all the way from Latin America. Super expensive. Yeah. Anyway. And he couldn't look more bored. <laughs> like falling asleep on he his He looks like he's a cold. And being that Cardinal Cornaro was a fancy lad, he mm. wanted a stunning. It's very sexual. Something very sexy. You know? Yes. Sensual, sexual, sexy chapel to yeah. be buried in. He chose the Church of Santa Maria de la Vittoria in Rome. Of course. Where the Discalce Carmelite Order had a location. And as fate would have it, Cornaro actually had ties to them, okay? Mm. His affluent family were patrons of theirs, a.k.a. they donated some dinero to the sisters. Gotcha. Get them the the new set of Birkenstocks that year, right? (laughs) I had to wonder how they afforded those. So when he starts shopping around for a local architect slash sculptor extraordinaire to design his tomb, he's wondering... Who? Who can make a saucy sculpture to fit in with my sexy chapel? The Discalce Carmelites just knew the one. They knew the sculptor to help him complete his afterlife vision. The nuns pitched the idea of making a sculpture of their dear, badass founder, St. Teresa of Avila. Okay. Bernini has a light bulb moment. He certainly knew who she was. He was living in Rome at that time, and he probably remembered the day that St. Teresa was canonized. Flashing back to his 20-year-old self, (laughs) attending the crowded canonization procession, music's filling the air, his long hair and his mustache are flouncing about as confetti (laughs) filled the streets. 
I like to picture that. Anyway, snapping back to the present, he thinks out loud, now's my chance to show everyone yeah. that I there am is. still Bernini, there that I invented broke, damn it. I'm I'm going to pump, my name's Bernini. <laughs> my name is Bernini, and I'm going to pump so much sexy. I wish you could see me, listeners. I'm kind of bobbing and weaving here. He's grasping his shirt. Yeah, I'm going to pump so much sexy into that into that fucking slab of stone over there. Oh my there. god! I'm gonna wear. I mean, and, and, and 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 nuns, I'm gonna take you up on the socks and Birkenstocks combo, sisters. I love it. I love it. You know what? Because you know, sometimes your feet get a little. Your toesies get a little cold. You know, you're working on the the marble and the and the, and the emo career, and you got to put the socks on. Support under, yeah. too. Yeah. But you need that that one of a kind support that only a Birkenstock offers. Uh, <laughs> okay. Off yeah. The code art size pod doesn't exist yet, but I'm sure they'll add that to it. Okay. I'll show everyone, everyone who eod me, especially that hack Boromini crotch thrust. (laughs) It's the perfect plan. And he wasn't wrong. The work Bernini was about to create would both cement his status as a broke bro and also immortalize St. Teresa in a totally unprecedented way. Walking into the church of Santa Maria de la Vittoria on a cloudy day, your eyes are met with a stunning barrage of opulence inside. From floor to ceiling, every inch of the interior is decorated, some of it in brilliant frescoes, gleaming marble, grand columns and archways, and warm electric light reflecting off the gilding that covers much of the surfaces. There is no place for your eyes to rest. No neutral space to break up one artwork from the next. All of this combined with the echoes of visitors chatting and shuffling about is enough to push you into sensory overload, as you barely keep your vision from blending everything into one gilded mess. If Baroque means irregular pearl, this one is very irregular. Only because Bernini designed it this way. After decades of toying with ideas of interactivity and theatricality, for the first time, he had complete control over the entirety of this chapel. It's as if he knew that the chapel could only hold one's attention for so long before becoming exhaustive. Unknown to you, his sense for theatrics are about to activate. As the clouds scatter outside, rays of sunshine break through. To your left, a white shape, a kind of lopsided heart, begins to glow in the distance from a hidden skylight above, and the chapel now directs you to the singular moment. A multitude of sharp, gilded rays catch the sun, the white shape becoming clear. Two beautifully carved marble figures shine, engaged in a scene just as extravagant as the dazzling splendor surrounding them and you. Stephanie, we're here on the shores of La Isla de Artslice, surrounded by the candy and condom moat. Mm. We caught the ecstasy of St. Teresa in a Pokemon, Pokemon <laughs> ball. Uh, we, we're going to let it out, yeah. put it through our little TSA guillotine patent pending thing. <laughs> 
But in order to get here first, we had to escape the hustle and bustle of Rome. It's very busy, very crowded, a lot of of scooters. And (laughs) ciao. And we had to make our way towards the countryside where we ran into an infinite hedge on our way to the Mediterranean Sea. The infinite hedge only had one little door. And what was inside, you ask? What was inside? A labyrinthian maze carved entirely in marble. You name it. Sculptures, giant emperor heads, undulating fabric, arches. Columns, bridges, little peepees. All, all little peepees, exactly. All with <laughs> little donkey ears attached. Wait, what? Yeah, it was truly horrifying. Oh, right. Yeah. Truly horrifying. horrifying. Yes. But honestly, while the labyrinth was massive, it was basically as complicated as a kid's activity book, although <laughs> much, you know, much larger. So that really wasn't the issue. What was the issue though? The a labyrinth monster that followed us the entire time. Yes, a bipedal, sentient, <laughs> marble donkey person what? wearing marble donkey ears. And the donkey was wearing a marble donkey mask. Yeah. Chasing us for days with dub's ears, right? Quad ears. (laughs) The haunting of the the eel. (laughs) Never far behind us. Luckily, just as we were running out of energy, though, remember, we're going through this labyrinth for days, I think. Maybe it was just a couple hours. I don't know. We ran into Marble Persephone also trying to escape, right? Yeah. She was standing next to a big pile of rubble Pluto. Yeah. This is a creepy Pluto in a pile of rubble. Yeah. 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 So she scooped us up and carried us to the exit (laughs) as we were running out of energy where our faces were finally met with the warm Mediterranean air and that beautiful (sighs) light where we see a bright yellow Art Slice Museum yacht conveniently waiting. And guess who's in the driver's seat, Stephanie? Frankie! Frankie, spirit Frankie, ghost Frankie, with wraparound sunglasses on, <laughs> chill as fuck, unfazed, until she <laughs> spotted that fucking Eeyore monster and, and running towards us, and she rips this gnarly spirit cat hiss and zooms away with us all on board, okay? Persephone <laughs> oh and all, right? I have chills. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Eeyore. All right, we are on La Isla now. We are safe. Spirit Frankie is sleeping on the leather-upholstered, naturally, mm-hmm. sun-drenched Eeyore yacht that's parked in the pier. Yep. Marble Proserpina slash Persephone is tending to the community garden. Beautiful, beautiful. And we have the ecstasy of St. Teresa. Yeah, we got it out of the Pokemon ball. And <laughs> And probably most of the chapel. Oops. We did that little Looney Tunes thing where we took a big saw <laughs> and we saw it off. We sawed it off. Sawed it off? Is it sawed it off? Your eyebrow's twitching right now. I guess okay. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we got we, we, we didn't get the cleanest cut is what I'm trying to say. English is stupid. So let's get into it and decide if the work belongs in the Art Slice Museum. Listeners, we will just start off by saying the Ecstasy of St. Teresa is the epitome of Baroque art. It is the image that comes up when you search Baroque, mm. literally. And while it is likely the poster child because of how salacious it was slash still is, <laughs> it is also a good example of the scope of Baroque. I like that. Scope of Baroque. Because it spans several mediums like painting and architecture, not just sculpture, making this more of an installation piece. Literally all of the sight lines, all of the architectural angles were all designed to lead you to the heart of the chapel where the ecstasy of St. Teresa sits. And remember, Bernini designed theater sets. Mm -hmm. He was an architect, too. So while the sculpture is the show you are here to see, everything Mm -hmm. around it is the theater you're watching it Mm -hmm. from. A theater designed only for this show, right? Right. There is a lot going on in this chapel. A lot. That's an understatement. Yeah. Uh, White marble for the actual statue. And then there's 20 different kinds of colored marble all over the chapel's interior. It's, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. So that, in conjunction with all of the decorative columns, 
columns and molding, fresco paintings, trumple lays, and sculptures of the patrons kind of leering down at St. Teresa. <laughs> yeah. We can go on and on and on. Make this maximal in every sense of the word. I mean, we, we have entered peak cheesecake factory aesthetic territory <laughs> here, right? On speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, like, it's all very purposeful for Bernini. Things are all interconnected, right? These are all pieces of a grander narrative meant to lead you through the experience. But I just get visual fatigue. It's just more, more, more. They keep bringing out like carts of cheesecakes, (laughs) keep giving you like a 50 page menu. (laughs) There are all these times that visual excess actually works really well for Bernini. But this is just too much. And that's just my general take, right? No, I agree. It's a lot. Like we said, frosting on frosting. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting a stomachache. My eyes hurt. And you know what, listeners? We don't want to do a whole season on this chapel. We really don't. So we're going to stick to the sculpture, okay? (laughs) It's about 11 feet tall, but you're pretty well barred from getting close to it in person, which makes it feel a lot smaller. Also, it bars you from walking around the sculpture. Mm -hmm. You really only have a couple of viewpoints because it is on that stage in a little enclave. (laughs) However, the skylight above offers the movement you are missing, right? It's the movement of light throughout the day. (laughs) on another level. Wow. Bernini has chosen to depict the transverberation described in St. Teresa's autobiography. And of course, in his Bernini way, he has brought this moment to life for us. We have two figures. One is of small stature and is upright, the cherub slash angel. Not not yet a cherub, not yet an angel. And to its left, there is a figure who is seemingly levitating above a floating cloud, St. Teresa. Need, Need some time, a moment. Uh, that is mine. Wait, wait. St. <laughs> Teresa, I mean, she is hyper idealized. Like she is the Hollywood version of the real person. St. Teresa's eyes are half closed. Her mouth is open and she looks like she's out of breath. And once again, there are all these different points of winds, like hitting the figures in different ways, not making any sense physics wise, mm-hmm. almost like action you'd see in a comic book. It's just there to add like a certain flourish to it, to look, to look cool. Which all of this makes St. Teresa his clothes kind of part <laughs> open around the chestal region. Stephanie, okay? uh, we got to figure out a way to get your gestures, your hand gestures into this, into these non-visual podcasts. Hmm, maybe YouTube one day. Hmm, yeah. We'll see. Hmm. And like in her description of her vision, the not yet angel has a spear like <laughs> arrow sort of thing pointed right in that direction. That chestal direction. Almost like the powerful winds of God are parting her clothing so Ooh. that the angel can do its thing. Dirty, dirty business, right? Right. It's no it's no secret. Bernini has made it look like St. Teresa is in the throes of an orgasm. Hey, if I was Bernini, I would have uh, sculpted her with a post-coital sandwich. Make it, a, <laughs> make it a little more realistic. <laughs> this is based on St. Teresa's quote. I can see why he ran with it. But, yeah. listeners, the audacity to sexualize a saint in an iglesia, no less. Okay, it shows you how untouchable Bernini was. Well, and we joke about how the Roman Catholic Church was basically in reboot and rebrand territory, right? Leaning on celebrity and big budget productions. Mm -hmm. But this is like a new tactic, being controversial. Yeah. (laughs) Equating carnal sin to a spiritual experience. And that is so pearl clutching, especially because nuns are supposed to be so modest. But like any good viral marketing, (laughs) it, it got a reaction from people, right? It stole the headline. 
getting back to the work, like any good theater set, you need good lighting, right? Right. So behind the figures, Bernini placed all these gilded rays with a hidden skylight above to not only light up the work, creating all these dramatic shadows that would change with the movement of the sun, but also the light would illuminate those gilded rays, right? <laughs> kind of acts like a big neon sign, right? Get Jacks to see here. Get Jacks to see here. Right this way. Don't get too close. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't just the ecstasy, though, either. It was how unusual it was, yeah. too. Like, back to that cherub slash not yet an angel, right? Their face <laughs> is peaceful. It's serene. It's white. It's also fucking sadistic. (laughs) There's a very uncanny valley effect going on here. It reminds me of precious moments, chapel faces. like Listeners, for those of you who weren't confined to the Midwest (laughs) in their preteens like we were, precious Uh, moments figurines are these creepy porcelain tchotchkes, angel-looking children from an ideal world that never existed. Yeah, they're creepy. They got kind of a dark story, too. The way the angel (laughs) is softly holding St. Teresa's robe, I mean, just barely, like limply, while holding their air between like two or three fingers just so daintily but so violent it's unnerving I mean this angel is showing that it can use minimal effort to just impale this mortal with the power of God their gauzy fabric has been sculpted so convincingly paper thin it's almost like translucent yes and it is actually blowing away from the force of that arrow whereas St. Teresa's robe it almost looks like El Greco's thick abstracted fabric but more refined but he's made it soft in the marble it's amazing. Yeah. Still chunky, but with smoother edges. It looks like you're looking at an aerial photo of desert sand dunes. Oh, yeah. But forget all that, Stephanie, because below <laughs> that is that cloud, <laughs> which is a totally different texture than the rest of the sculpture. It's rougher. Mm-hmm. It's a bit closer to the raw marble. The variety of textures that Brunini is showing us formally are just, it's it, its a chef's kiss, right? <laughs> and it's actually dawning on me why, why I love Brunini so much. Why? Because his sculptures are painterly. Oh, yeah. They're very painterly. Like oh, yeah. <laughs> translucency versus density. Mm-hmm. Uh, different gestures, movements, textures, small clusters of details over there versus like larger, more open shapes over here. He's letting the variety of materials speak for themselves like a painter. But let me ask you, though, Russell, do you want some of that Bernini ecstasy? Some of that ecstasy, ecstasy. In the Art Slice Museum? Uh-oh. Uh, okay, the the piece itself is incredible, and incredible isn't even the right word. Just like with all of Bernini's work, it, it leaves you speechless. It kind of sucker punches you in a way, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you aren't expecting it. Running it through the patent pending three chop process, chop, chop, though. Chop. Step one, chop one. If I go tunnel vision <laughs> and just focus on the sculpture and block out the Cheesecake Factory on acid around it, this is one of the most well-crafted works of art I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Like, forget the figures, that fucking cloud. <laughs> I love that fucking cloud. The dude is painting with marble. Okay, it's incredible. Yeah. Chop two, step two. How subversive <laughs> and awesome, showing a nun probably having an orgasm with the ether of the universe. That's crazy. Yeah. Showing a woman actually enjoying something sexual is is very rad on Mm -hmm. its own, right? Usually at this time, it was the perspective of the male's enjoyment, not necessarily the woman's. But here is St. Teresa carved in fucking stone, hoisted up so everyone can see her, I guess, having a good time, right? (laughs) Yeah. But still, like, something is not completely adding up for me. Like, I feel like she is lying in Marcel Duchamp's Attente Donnée peephole, you know? (gasps) Oh, right. Yeah. And Bernini has, like Duchamp, made me this voyeur. Oh, right. Is that why I'm kind of starting to pump my brakes? Well, even the page Patrons sculpted in the faux theater box seats watching this event are all men. Of course. And one of them is reading St. Teresa's biography just to confirm. Like, like, did you you see this shit? (laughs) Did you see this shit? No, she is. No, is she? Yeah, she is. 
But I think most of my questions are answered in chop three, step three, the neon sign. Mm -hmm. Like you said, she is just being used as part of a viral RC squared campaign. And there is plenty of beautiful art that was essentially propaganda at one point. And we do have to take them for what they are worth. Ultimately, Art Slice Museum wise, I'm I'm really torn still. Like, I don't think this has helped me piece this out at all, really. It's like... When you have your like fortune read and you're like, okay, that's what it is, but I, I don't yeah, know. I still don't know where I to go know. with it. Yeah, I don't like, know what to do. I, I figured it out, but I don't know exactly. I totally agree. I start to feel overwhelmed when I think about yeah. all of the pieces that had to fall into place to make this gorgeous sculpture, not just the colonizing and the forced labor that the RC squared was part of. That's a problem with almost any of the art from this era. Mm-hmm. St. Teresa herself was forced to write down these events for the Spanish Inquisition because they actually they had their eye on her, you know, this woman having mystical visions, kind of sketchy. Who knows if they would have seen the light of day otherwise. She was on board with the Reformation in her own way, right? With the discalced Carmelites, those dogs. Um, So (laughs) she probably would have liked being remembered or portrayed for that aspect. But would she have been mortified by this depiction? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, honestly, we won't ever know, right? (laughs) She really wanted to impact the church, like Mm -hmm. you said. So it's probably more complex than just a binary she did or didn't approve. Right. So I guess that was step three for me. You're working backwards. Yes. Okay. Three, two, one. You're welcome. Mixing it up. <laughs> step two is that I had FOMO back in the day, listeners. So <laughs> I made the track to see this in Rome. Uh-huh. And while I don't regret seeing it, I probably could have lived without it. You can see more of it in pictures, honestly, of the actual sculpture. Depending on the time of day, you may not even get to see the golden rays at their brightest. And honestly, that goes for the rest of the chapel slash church. Mm. It's not like it's continually lit perfectly like in a gallery or a museum. The church has its own lighting, of course, but natural light plays a huge part in that as well. That's how Bernini designed it. Yes. And I'm not saying don't go see it. Listen to your heart. But I think that there are other statues that warrant the trek for me. To me, it's like maybe if you want to be in that historical space, of course, go there. Mm -hmm. But don't really expect to have this close one-on-one moment with the sculpture. Okay. So step one, this is definitely a word that sticks in your brain for all of the reasons we mentioned. It is loaded. When I look at this work in photos, (laughs) I do feel awed and inspired and it has a special place in my Corazon for a while. Then that feeling of being overwhelmed by the splendor turns into a sugar overload. This chapel is like too much sugar at once, but you can't get away from it because it's everywhere you look. It's a lot. But it is connected to Bernini, right? Like he designed the chapel specifically for it, which I kind of have to honor. So I think ultimately, I don't think I want this one. I want it to be in a wing of a museum where you can just learn from it. It is such an amazing piece and it has such an amazing story. Okay. But also, I don't know if we're just, I'm torn. I don't know. I'm torn. Maybe I'll just get a Precious Moments version of it. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I love it. Well, oh, yeah, I'll keep it in the Pokemon ball for now. We'll get a Precious Moments Chapel version of it until we decide. Well, we do have Proserpina, remember? We have her now. Yeah. But if I had it my way, are you ready? Me and my sledgehammer. Uh-oh, oh, no. uh-oh. Smash, smash, smash. What are you smashing? The angel, not yet a cherub. Oh, wait. <laughs> cherub not yet an angel why are you smashing the cherub creepy that's part of the yeah he is creepy i want saint Teresa on the cloud well i don't want these little dashed lines with it with it like missing (laughs) 
like the comic book. Yeah, sure, sure. Then we can acknowledge there okay. was something. All right, there. for now, Stephanie. For now, we'll have a wall. We'll have your little depict, your little creepy depiction of the not, the not yet a cherub or not, no longer a cherub, not yet an angel, <laughs> with little dashed lines. Like crime it's missing. scene. <laughs> missing. Where to go? And then next to that, we'll have my creepy ass precious moments version of it. Yes. R- really confused yes. people who come in. Yes, I'm thinking we have a treasure map one day. Find the Saint Teresa's. Gian Lorenzo Bernini, a pure talent who thrived without consequence under the protection of the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. St. Teresa of Avila, who, born into privilege, still faced a restrictive existence as a queer woman in 16th century Spain, testing the boundaries of her autonomy even under the tight fist of the Spanish Inquisition. Seemingly opposites in most aspects of their lives shared a discipline and curiosity that pushed them to the limits of art and spirituality, no matter the cost. To this day, both shadows loom large. And it's hard to imagine how differently the world would look without them. Bernini and St. Teresa's physical paths would never cross. But luckily for all of us, they did intersect in the masterpiece that is the ecstasy of St. Teresa, where one not come to fruition without the other. So listeners, that is going to do it for us today. The featured music today was Net Content Electric Ingredients by Patrick Kilpatrick from the album Introducing Patrick Kilpatrick. <laughs> we were listening to it earlier. It's it's like a good spring album. Perfect. It's yeah, perfect for it's this really time nice. of year. For yeah, sure. Pick it up. We will put a link in the show notes. Thanks to longtime listener slash patron Anne for reading St. Teresa's quote. Don't forget to let us know what you thought about the work, share the show with a friend, and join those fine folks like Anne who help support arts slice on our patreon and no and no your kid could not have sculpted that unless your kid is an eight-year-old with a once in a generational talent and has all the right <laughs> circumstances aligned at just the right time but st- i mean they would probably still look a lot different than bernini's still no bye